All right, y'all, we're back for another edition of Are You a Robot podcast, videocast. Today, I'm joined by none other than Sasha, who I'm going to let give a brief intro about herself and what she's working on before we jump into the full conversation. Hi, um, I'm Sasha Lucioni. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Mila Institute in Montreal, and I work uh, on AI for Humanity initiatives. So if this is your first time tuning in, welcome to Are You a Robot? If this is not your first time, then welcome back. We are a series that aims to tackle and explore some of the greatest questions that stem from AI and related technologies. The way that we're going about doing this is by bringing on some of the best and brightest minds that we can find in their respective fields. And they talk to me about what they're doing and if there are any best practices or if they have any strong opinions on how we can move forward in a harmonious way. The conversations don't stop here though. I would love to invite you into our Slack channel, which you can find all the links for below in the links. And there we're creating a quite a vibrant community around AI ethics and AI governance. We love every time someone joins new. So please jump in there, join us. We would love to have you and your voice and hear what you're working on, hear what your thoughts are with AI ethics and anything that is around these kind of technologies. So the last thing I will mention is that we've got an incredible sponsor. Ethics Grade is an AI benchmarking firm and they are responsible for the high quality and high caliber of guests that we have on this show. So I have to thank them very much for doing that hard work and finding some of these bright minds. If you would like to find out more about what they are doing, click the link below. Or if you would like to get your company benchmarked to see how ethical you are being in the AI department, definitely check out the links below and give them a shout. So without further ado, we have got Sasha Lucioni with us today. Let's hear what she has to say. Are you a robot? Sasha, thank you so much for coming on to the Are You a Robot podcast and videocast. I'm very excited to have you here. It's great to be here. So today I want to talk about so many different things. I have so many avenues that we can go down because you are an incredible person when it comes to AI and especially using AI in a very ethical way with respect to climate change and our carbon footprint. Uh, but before we get into any of that, I think it would probably be helpful for listeners to know how you came to be where you're at. It's actually been a really long road. Uh, so I got my PhD uh, almost uh, four years ago, and um, I spent two years working in uh, companies, essentially um, trying to 
learn uh, applied AI uh, growing essentially in that direction. And then um, after two years of that, I realized that um, my heart lays in um, more ethical applications. Yeah. And AI mm-hmm. for good. So I quit my job. I was working at Morgan Stanley at the time. And uh, it's been two years that I've been at Mila Institute. Um, and it was a big change. Um, and it was really a, a following my heart kind of moment. But um, I'm really awesome. glad I did it. And I'm glad that I uh, that I kind of made that leap of faith. Uh, and I can pursue things that I really care about now. Yeah. And you just, you mentioned Mila. Can you give us a bit more background on what that is and what you're doing there? Yeah. So Mila is a pretty cool place. It's um, an AI uh, research institute in Montreal, and it brings together uh, researchers from different universities, different companies, essentially. It's supposed to be one of the biggest um, non, uh, like non-for-profit uh, gathering of, uh, of machine learning researchers in the world. So mm-hmm. essentially, we've got, I think, now almost 500 people working in AI. Um, so a lot of uh, fundamental research, but also a lot of kind of AI ethics, philosophical things. So, so it's, it's, a really, it's a really nice melting pot. Yeah. And I imagine for most of the listeners out there, they've probably heard of it because it is quite a thought leader when it comes to AI ethics. I know they have great papers that are being put out. They have incredible research that's being done, like you said. So I'm wondering in your own words, how would you describe to us what exactly it is that you do? So I do a lot of things, but essentially um, AI for humanity, I find is a good way to sum it up. Um, It's a bit above AI for good. Um, It's more, you know, thinking about and also kind of uh, acting on uh, how to use AI in a positive way for society. So Mm. anything from actual applied research projects, which I do work on, but also creating tools, um, for example, the, the carbon calculator tool, and also, you know, participating in discussions around ethical frameworks. So it kind of runs the scope of all that. But the, the conducting kind of the, the, the main thought is that, you know, how can we use this really powerful tool, this really, you know, great potential in order to benefit humanity, to benefit society? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like how you take the approach of making sure that with all of the hype that AI brings, it we don't get wrapped up in that and like just lose sight of some foundational things. Like when you speak about, hey, is it really the best idea to be training these machine learning algorithms on this huge resource just so that it can do simple tasks? like put together a Rubik's Cube where everyone on the internet says, yeah, all right, cool. Wow, that's amazing that we've come so far. But then people don't realize what's behind that. Yeah, and it's an environmental problem, of course, and that's kind of the angle that we've taken. But it's also a broader societal problem. Um, I think that uh, because of the increasing size of models, the increasing computational power that you need, I mean, yeah, it's bad for the environment, but it's also very hard for people to get a foot in the door now. Like if you need 100 GPUs just to compete with the state of the art, that's an issue, right? We don't want AI to become this elitist field where you need, you know, half a million dollars in cloud computing credits to even be able to compete on a on a leaderboard. So so it's also kind of this, we should focus on on, on things that are, are easier for people to, to get behind so that we have new voices. Because, you know, if we do that, we're going to have the same people, the same people with money, with power, who, who keep on making the state of the art. And then it's going to be harder and harder to kind of get be part of that momentum. And that's what we don't want. We want that 
new people to come in. We want, you know, new blood, new ideas. And, and that's kind of what I've been advocating. Yeah, that's such a great point. And it actually reminds me of a talk uh, that I had a while back with a friend. And he was talking about how really the important thing for machine learning right now, when we start to see it becoming more and more commoditized, is that you need these subject matter experts that are going to have this deep, deep knowledge, whether it's a doctor or a lawyer that's going to explain how the machine learning needs to work. And to your point of, well, if you can just spend a couple million bucks and be the leader, but you don't think about anything that is the baggage that's behind that, like the cloud computing costs, then it's really, uh, it's a delicate trade-off, right? So I think there's one thing also that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, which was the the cloud computing cost, or sorry, the AI, what what was it, the AI compute cost? Yeah, that you the cloud, I mean, it depends on whether you have like local infrastructure or in the cloud. Most people use the cloud just because they don't have 500 GPUs where they are. Yeah, and, and so you built something, I was just, I just, before we started talking, uh, you have something on GitHub, right? That is uh, showing how much carbon you expend when the uh, when you train a model. Yeah, is so we created a tool called Code Carbon, and the idea is that essentially whatever script you're running, whatever program, it could be it could be AI, but it could be something like any kind of essentially computer program. It's like a little widget that runs in the background and, and it detects essentially what energy grid you're connected to. And that's like the main factor of how polluting you are. So for example, here in Montreal, we have um, hydroelectricity. So it's, it's very low carbon. But if you're, I don't know, in Singapore, for example, it's almost 100% coal-based. So just that like single factor by detecting where you are, it's going gonna, it's gonna to give you an idea of how much CO2 you're emitting per you know, kilowatt hour of electricity. And then it also um, detects how long you were running a script and like how many parallel processes you have. And in the end, it spits out an estimate. <clears throat> it's a, it's an estimate for sure uh, of how much CO2 you emitted. And so it's just to give you an idea of like, for example, if you are running on the cloud and you have a choice of where you run your, your algorithm, especially if you're running for like a month, which a lot of AI now needs, it can be like a huge, it could be tons and tons of carbon if you make that choice between like Quebec <clears throat> and Singapore in terms of in terms of CO2. So it's essentially like a really easy tool that people can use just to get an idea of how much CO2 you're they're emitting um, in their code. Yeah, and just letting people be more conscientious of yeah. where they're doing it. And do you also give a map of where you get better or more environmentally environmentally friendly grids? Yeah. So what we do is we give um, a map of the world and we show in relative to like whatever you're um, like emitting where you could go like lower. So for example, oh, if, if I'm in Quebec, it's really hard to emit even less than hydro. But if you're in, a, in like a, a middle ground, you can always choose a country that's that's less emitting. And um, what we did is we, we um, essentially mapped out where the main uh, cloud providers have their servers. So like Amazon, yes. Google Cloud, et cetera. And we can say like, well, if you're using Google Cloud, so this is this is what you can use that's less emitting. If you're using Amazon, it would be here, right? Because they don't always have the same places, like the same uh -huh. servers in the same places. So, and then if you're using a local grid, then there's other steps you can take, like, for example, like have less of a grid search for parameters for your model. So it's also like more in having a more mindful practice of machine learning, not being just like, I'm just going to run it for a month and see what happens. Like, just be a bit more conscientious about that. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and that makes total sense. And it's very nice that you raise the issue even because before you talk about it, I think for many of these uh, engineers, it's easy to not even think about that, right? It's just like, oh, well, I'm, I've got infinite scale and infinite compute on my cloud. And you don't think about these um, these secondary effects. And yeah, and um, this was brought up actually by Emma Trubell uh, in 2019. They, they published a paper. Um, they did one study about like they actually essentially um, trained a model from scratch and showed how much CO2 it emits. And that was kind of the trigger because a lot of people were like, whoa, this one model <laughs> emits as much as five cars. But how about the other models we trained? But there were no tools um, in order to estimate it, right? Um, unless you would write your own script from scratch, which is really mm -hmm. difficult. So this is why we, we decided to make this calculator because I think a lot of people care, but it's really hard to get the numbers. And I think as scientists, as engineers, we really want to get like, you know, the nitty gritty details about like, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about a gram? Or are we talking about like, a ton, right? And this is why we made the tool to give people an, an order of, of magnitude of the CO2 emissions they emit. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I feel like it has applications beyond just the AI world, right? I've heard horror stories of people working in databases and they did some kind of join and then the boss came down the line like two days later saying, hey, uh, what have you been up to? Because we got like this $40,000 bill that we don't know why, and it's looking like it's coming from you. And so I think this is a really important theme that you're touching on is that these days we have infinite computing or infinite computing abilities, yeah. right? If you have the money, you can compute like crazy. But is that the proper way? Like just because we can, should we? Yeah, I think mindfulness is, is a big point and... I think I, I truly believe that if people knew had the numbers that they would make the necessary to take the necessary steps. So often it's, it's really coming from a place of like, I don't understand the impact, which which is okay, right? Like for the longest time, we didn't understand the impact of many of our actions on the environment. Like now we know that, you know, I don't know, microplastics are bad, right? So it's, it's really like, it's, it, it's a human journey. And hopefully like we contributed to part of that journey in giving com computer computing practitioners this tool, um, whether they're database administrators or or machine learning experts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's a a very useful tool. So, tell me more about what you're doing because I know you got all kinds of cool stuff going on. What other stuff are you working on? Um, so in general, um, so actually two years ago, almost, we wrote this paper called Tackling Climate Change with Machine Learning. So, we were like 20 authors on it and um, it's interesting because so we created a uh, an association around it. We created a group of people called Climate Change AI. So I'm involved mm. in that. And uh, we do research, but we also organize events. We, um, you know, we try to bring together people. And I think that um, moving the needle on climate change with machine learning is, is a lot, like you said, connecting with domain experts. And, and often if you're coming from just a pure machine learning or AI background, you don't really know who those experts are, right? You're like, oh, I want to yeah. optimize an electricity grid. And then you just download some data and like whatever. Um, and we've, saw, we've seen a lot of that. And so now we're, we're really trying to connect people with the relevant experts to build multidisciplinary projects. So we're really like connecting the dots on, the, on, on this. And um, I'm head of uh, the content committee of, C of Climate Change AI. And essentially we're making resources, we're making tutorials, we're making... Um, 
uh, I don't know, all these data sets, we're curating data sets that people can actually use. So the idea is, you know, I, if people want to get involved, we're trying to give them the tools that they need to get involved so that people don't feel like they're just alone against this like massive monster of climate change. So so essentially, yeah, we're trying to create like a, a, a minimum viable mass of people who want to get involved. And it, it's been really encouraging. That is incredible. And it, it made me think about something that is a little bit ironic, I would imagine that you're almost like, so you're playing both sides of machine learning for good for climate. Like you're helping people understand their costs and how detrimental uh, training a machine learning model can be, right, uh, to the environment. But then there's also the other side of like, hey, I've heard a lot of people saying we can use machine learning to help us with climate change. Right, and I I just thought about some ironic pieces of that. Like if if someone was trying to use machine learning for the environment uh, or to help us with climate change, and then the machine learning model that they were training was actually doing more harm than good. (laughs) Sorry, I got my daughter jumping in here. She wants to say hi. Hey. So I think it is a it is a trade off. Um, it's not quite the same ballpark. Like there's relatively few machine learning models that emit really like huge amounts of of, of CO two. So essentially, I see it as two two sides of the same coin. So creating a tool so people understand their impact and making sure that you're you know comparing apples to apples. Like so, I'm working on a, a project that aims to I don't know detect methane emissions, and so I want to make sure that the methane emissions that I'm detecting are proportional like are are more than the, the model itself. But honestly, in most cases um, in climate change related projects, um, because we're not training neural networks from scratch, because we're not trying to like, because essentially where most of the CO2 comes in, in machine learning research is um, hyperparameter search. So essentially you're training like a model of so many times in order to find the right parameters to, to apply to your data set, for example. A lot less of that is done in climate change research because you're often trying to, you know, apply techniques. You're not trying to like reinvent the wheel. You're you're taking an existing architecture and you're tweaking it, or you're using it on a different data set and things like that. So, so it's not quite the same order of magnitude of emissions as like training a GPT model from scratch. Like mm-hmm. it's not quite there yet. But of course, it's, it's important to be aware, right? To to essentially compare cost and benefit in, in any case, even if it's not uh, essentially the same scale. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, like, what are some things that you have been finding that machine learning is very useful for, like how to combat climate change? There's so many. Um, So, for example, uh, remote sensing has been a big part. So using so now we have access to a lot of satellite imagery of the Earth. And um, traditionally, you know, it's been manually analyzed, but it's not really a scalable approach. So a lot of techniques are using remote sensing data. And it's interesting because you can use images, but you can also use LIDAR, which is essentially, you know, 3D radar mapping. You can use uh, infrared. You can use the whole spectrum of of, of imagery in order to detect, for example, methane leaks. Like uh, you won't see it on an image. You won't necessarily see it on, you know, um, a LIDAR, but then you will see it in the infrared spectrum. And then if you essentially compare these three sources together, you can pinpoint where the leak is, you know, using the map plus the satellite imagery, plus the infrared imagery, imagery together. And then you'll see that, you know, I don't know, somewhere in the Arctic, there's a, there's a methane leak. So there's, there's interesting like ways of putting together data sets that haven't necessarily been put together using machine learning that I find are, are, is particularly 
uh, powerful. And since machine learning can crunch a lot of data, it's not like you can really utilize and, and, and um, essentially have insights that we didn't have from a single source of data. Yeah, yeah, that that is a great point. And thinking about how useful it is and to the point of scale, right? This was trying to be done before, but now we can do it at a much larger scale and with much more data. So that is also really encouraging to hear. I know that you are a National Geographic Explorer too. So maybe you could tell us a bit about what's going on there and your your love for, I guess it, it makes complete sense, your love for the environment, your love for the planet. And so can you give us a bit of background on that? Yeah, so the National Geographic Explorer program has been going on for a few years, but I mean, for a while now. In the last couple of years, they started giving out grants specifically in using AI for Earth. So um, I got a grant for my project of visualizing climate change with AI from National Geographic. And essentially what that means is that, you know, well, you go through a filtering process and essentially National Geographic says that they believe in your project and that they're ready to support it financially. They're ready to kind of uh, help it go to the next level. And um, a lot of the projects are really interesting, right? People go out and gather data in the field and they'll, you know, do tracking of endangered species, things like that. Um, so essentially National Geographic supports this research. And what it entails is that you become kind of an advocate, you become, uh, you get a platform for uh, connecting to other people, for um, getting training, for getting... Amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really cool. It's really a great support group. And um, also for us, because our project is is so visual, having National Geographic support is, is especially important because, you know, they're going to help us disseminate our website. They're going to help us make sure that it, it, it uh, um, gets seen by the, the maximum number of people. It reaches the maximum number of people. And this is a different project than the one you were just speaking about, about the methane? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the methane project is just an example. It's not my own research. Uh, the okay. project that I'm working on now um, is essentially using um, generative networks, so GANs, uh, in order to help people imagine the future consequences of climate change. So the idea is, you know, right now we have the ability to act on climate change in the future, right? But it's really hard to imagine what climate change can do to our planet, because essentially right now things are kind of okay, right? They're kind of subtly getting yeah. worse, but not, not that um, it's not that obvious to us. And as it's like it's like the frog in the in the uh, you know the water is getting yeah. hotter and hotter. It's it's at a certain point it's going to be boiling. We're not going to realize. And so what we're trying to do is yeah. kind of help people project themselves in a future where climate change is impacting our planet, is impacting the places we live and the and the places you know we we hold uh, close to our hearts and. I mean, it's it's total. It's it's like a it's a hypothetical scenario, right? Because we don't know exactly how climate change is going to impact. Uh, I don't know wherever you live, uh, wherever you, you you travel. But we have an idea of what's going on already, right? There's already flooding. There's already smog and and wildfires. And so so what we're doing is we're creating images of like a potential future climate, and and essentially as a as a warning, as an awareness raising tool to say, hey, this is going to happen. It's going to happen maybe in fifty years, maybe in ten years. We, we don't know that yet, but we have to act now to make sure that doesn't happen. So it's like an educational tool using AI. <laughs> so Sasha, you seem very like an optimistic person <laughs> and you're working on this every day and it sounds very depressing. It's uh, depressing, but I think, I mean, I've come to the conclusion that 
or so. I mean, I think people are very well-intentioned. Like I know that talking to people, people care about climate change. People realize it's an issue, right? But when it comes to acting on it, to actually changing the way that, you know, either we uh, eat, travel, vote, because it, it's like an all-encompassing thing. It's not just, it's just not enough to give up meat one day of the week. You have to actually, you know, vote for people who are going to take action. You have to, you know, stop taking the plane 50 times a year or, you know, in a post-corona world. So essentially we have to make these changes. And I think what it would take, I mean, this is based on actual research and psychology saying that, you know, showing this kind of imagery, showing these kind of very visceral images helps people overcome cognitive bias. So this has been proven for, um, for example, saving up for retirement. There was this experiment that showing people aged versions of themselves helps people save for retirement. Like if I show you a picture of you in 50 years, like, you know, a generated Space one. App. Is that so, where they, they came up with that idea? That was um, very it was hot. A, it, was a, it was a group of psychology researchers. Essentially, they, they, did, and they, they did a study and then they'll ask people like, how much do you want to save for your retirement this month? And by showing them that image of them old, they would save up like, you know, five or 10 times more for their retirement savings because all wow. of a sudden it became more concrete. Right. So this is kind of the, what we're basing ourselves on. Like it's like an age, aging version of the, of the planet to help people mm. uh, imagine. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I could see that. And so there are some really difficult images, I'm sure, that you're producing. And I didn't quite get how you're producing them. It's with a GAN. Yeah. That is. And so it's just basically aging the planet in a way that uh, the machine learning is, is aging the planet before your, our eyes. Is that how it works? Essentially. Um we're using is like essentially you in, input an address and we get the Google Street View image of that address and then we apply a GAN that will uh, make different projections. So it will pro make a pro flooding projection, it's going to make a wildfire projection and a smog projection, which are based on real images of these phenomena. So essentially we trained our networks on a lot of images of flooding, a lot of images of, of wildfires, et cetera. And the idea is, is that, well, this is like a place that you chose, a place that you know, right? It could be your house, it could be whatever, mm -hmm. your, your, your work. Um, and this is what, it, what could happen to it if, uh, you know, if these extri extreme climate events happened. And um, essentially we're um, going to show real events of climate change. So for example, like a flood, in, um, in Australia or wildfire in California, right? Like these are the events that are happening already, but they're just not where you're searching for. So this yeah. is what it would happen if this wildfire from California came to your backyard, if this flood from Australia flooded your street, right? The mm. idea is like all of these events are so far away that for us it's kind of abstract, but we're making them more concrete. And is it safe to say then that nowhere is safe? Because I'm sure people will argue, oh, yeah, but I live, on a live in the... Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> and, it's true that it, it, nowhere is safe in the sense that um, it's unpredictable. So, of course, flooding can only happen in certain areas. You know, wildfires can only happen in certain areas. But sooner or later, the climate's going to change in a way that every place on Earth is going to be impacted in a different way, to, to a different extent. And of course, like people can hide in New Zealand until that happens. But, you know, sooner or later, it's going to be in New Zealand, too. So the idea is um, to act before that happens, because there are feedback loops that can start. There are, you know, there are certain things that we can't even predict, right? If we hit a certain degree of, of, of warming, we don't even know what the impacts are going to be on the Arctic ice, right, on the sea level rise. So that's kind of the issue. I think that the IPCC does a very good job of communicating the risks, but there's still kind of 
it's still scientific terms, right? It's like the risk of blah, blah, blah is this. It's very abstract. People don't really understand it. But when you make it visual, all of a sudden it becomes more concrete. This is what 1.5 degree mean, degrees means. This is what four degrees means, right? Mm. And so, of course, we don't know exactly where we're heading, but we know that it's going to be like a global phenomenon. And, and maybe, you know, yeah, maybe there's going to be a minority of people, especially um, privileged global north, right? People who have money to buy, to, to build barrages or, or, or whatnot. Of course, like, you know, maybe that's going to be the case, but, you know, 95% of the global population that doesn't have the money to do that is going to be impacted. And, and that's an issue. Mm-hmm. Great points you're bringing up here. I wonder about the ideas that you were speaking to before with how it's not enough to just say, yeah, I really am, I really think global warming is horrible and give it lip service, but to act and make choices and do lead your life from this point. I mean, I think we all at this point in life or in the world and where we're at right now, we understand that it is quite a detrimental thing for the environment, but we don't have clear signs to what we can do. And you mentioned like not eating meat because, uh, and so this might even just be news for some people that the whole meat industry is putting out an incredible amount of carbon emissions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so that, I know because uh, a few years ago, I was teaching English in Spain and I would ask, we would have like a a session on global warming and I would ask them, what are the biggest emitters of greenhouse gases? And people would always say cars and transport, but no one ever said farms. Yeah, agriculture. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's something that it back to kind of the question that I'm thinking about here is, have you thrown around the idea of AI helping people make better choices? Yeah, actually, there are tools um, that try to do that. So I guess the main barrier is that it's very um, context specific. So depending on Mm -hmm. where you live, depending on what your... um, you know, daily routine is like, it's a different action that can be taken, right? For example, yeah, so in Quebec, uh, maybe unplugging uh, appliances that we don't use is less impactful just because the energy is so is so um, low carbon. But in another place, that could be the single most impactful thing, like improving the isolation in your home and in unplugging appliances that you don't use just because you're in a coal power grid. But, you know, uh, on the flip side, maybe where I live, um, because I drive a pickup truck, that would be the most, um, you know, and then in another place, it's because I, so it's really hard because you need to kind of take into account contextual factors in order to do this kind of best, best step. But there are, um, there are people working on this, essentially, like uh, creating apps that people can use um, in order to, for example, uh, kind of measure their lifestyle emissions and then say, well, based on what I've been gathering, the data I've been gathering in the last, whatever, month about like what you do, how you travel, et cetera. This is like the, the single best thing you can do because mm. otherwise you kind of get into these generic things, which are kind of not necessarily applicable in some cases. Right. Exactly. So it's really important to, to, to pinpoint and to gather the data. I think gathering the data is, is a really important factor because otherwise we're just basing ourselves on averages. Like in the, in the country that you live in, the average is this, right. But it doesn't mm. mean that it's representative of you. And there's so many things to be done, right. From, 
from uh, your um, your diet to you know buying clothes that uh, you know or throwing away uh, or not recycling right there's so many aspects to it that I think that people just it's hard to to understand the relativism of like giving up meat once a week is equivalent to you know not or driving 50 kilometers in your car right there's it's really hard to make these equivalences across the board yeah and I've heard that if you show people in images it's very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think images and a big part of our website is going to be acting. So, so like when you see the image, we're going to have a big act now button and mm. then you're going to have a choice of actions that you can take. And um, so we're actually basing ourselves on, on several different sources. We're not going to you know, reinvent the wheel. Um, so there's this project called Drawdown that mm -hmm. actually tried to crunch the numbers on this. And so they, they were working on more of a global scale, right? So it's like if everyone... Uh, adopted a pl plant-based diet if everyone, you know, uh, for example, decarbonized the transportation sector. So we're trying to bring that down on an individual level because, you know, mm -hmm. if I if I tell you, oh, well, you know, if everyone goes vegan, then global warming is done, right? You're like, but yeah. what does that mean for me? Because if, if I don't do it and then my neighbor doesn't do it, right, and then nothing happens. So we're trying mm -hmm. to bring it down on an individual level and say, okay, well, if, you know, you do it, then this is going to be the, the consequence. So because I think people also think that it's also um, a tragedy of the commons. Uh, yep. It's like, right? Like, I was just going to say that. No one, no one really does it, and so action never gets taken. So we're trying to kind of <laughs> try overcome the tragedy of the commons. Yeah, which is a difficult feat in itself. Yeah. And so then are you going to be putting, like in this act now, is it going to be something like, hey, well, if I stop eating meat for just one day a week, which is nothing, for most people, like that is not that difficult to do, right? Uh, and then you you show them or you give them equivalents of mm -hmm. what that would be equal to, and then you you give them pictures and you you try to overcome that through visual stimulus again. Yeah, yeah so the idea is is that so first on the website people will learn about climate change what it means and then you enter an address, you see kind of the images and then you're going to have like an act now and um you, I mean it's really hard to exactly quantify um like to give you like I don't know 100 grams of CO2 for day you don't eat meat right yeah. so it, it's most most like more like a, an average of of um, for example like if you if you do eat a steak every Monday if you stopped eating that steak we could tell you right so um, and the idea is also to give people kind of different choices and um, something we've been toying around with that I really really like is the idea of a time capsule so say you say today uh, I want to do meatless Monday or, or whatever uh, meatless Friday um, and then you can send an email to yourself that will arrive in a month that will check up on it and say, okay, in the last month, have you actually been doing what you yourself said you would do, right? We're not actually forcing you to commit to anything, but like just to give yourself kind of like a more, because I think that it, essentially it's up to us to follow up on ourselves, but typically we're really bad at that, right? Like, you know, someone will say they'll stop drinking or smoking and then, you know, go back, fall off the wagon. So the idea is yeah. to kind of add a degree of accountability, but like self accountability. Mm. Yeah. The accountability is crucial and it's really a lot coming down to habits and how we form habits and how we break habits. And that is, I mean, books, libraries are full of books that <laughs> speak about that, right? So it's a, it's a really fascinating subject. And I think that it's incredible you're doing that. And instantly what I wonder is, is it already lost on 
the older generations? Like, will it help people that are already set in their ways and that don't really care that much to change? And, and I instantly think like, oh, this will be great for children, but I wonder about the older generations. I mean, from a very kind of skeptical, uh, I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit rough to say this, but what matters are the younger generations at this point. Like we're not going to try to convince someone who's pushing 60 um, and who grew up in a time. It's also kind of, if you, if you put things relatively speaking, right. When, when they were 20 or 18 or five, uh, it wasn't an issue. So it's really hard for someone who's older to, to, to care about things that just were sprung on them in the last, you know, 20 years of their life. So we're really aiming um, to get younger generations. So, I mean, more like uh, from 16 to, you know, 35, because the next 20 years, I mean, also the past 20 years, but the next 20 years are really crucial. So the people who are coming of age in the next years, the people who are going to be taking positions of power, right? Like the next prime minister of Canada, the next president of the US, this is who we, we need to be on board because, you know, the people who are retired, and, you know, first of all, it, it's, they're not necessarily in positions of power anymore, right? Especially the older generations, but the younger generations do have this critical mass that they can still, and they can also um, transmit this, right? If a 16-year-old mm. uses our website and then they share it on TikTok or whatever, then someone else will use it. And that's the idea. Also, we're creating like kind of social media widgets that you can like share on, on Facebook or whatever saying, Hey, this is my house, uh, underwater. What, what would yours yeah. look like? And then so to create this, this viable mass and this viral mass, that's not necessarily going to be uh, used by older people, which is, which is fine. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. And there's some valid points in there. It's something that for these, these people, it's not really their, they're not going to be the ones that deal with it as much as the younger generations. So yeah. and there's that's a, a... That's been an issue for a while because uh, the people who bear the brunt of our actions are not necessarily us or our future us or our future hypothetical children if we don't have children. And it's also... So, so human biases, there's the bias of distance. Things are far away from us. We think that are less of a risk. This is why, like, this is the way we, we just evolved, right? Yeah. And then there's also the the time. We, we have a discounting factor. So if I say, would you prefer $100 now or $100 in a month or, or even $200 in a month? People tend, tend to say $100 now, right? Because yeah. things that are hypothetical in the future, abstract. And so this has been a big barrier in acting on climate change because we think that and there's no way that my actions in 2021 will impact the state of the planet in 2050, but, but yet, but it will. Right. So we're mm -hmm. trying to make that missing link and to kind of help people project themselves into the future saying, yeah, it's not your actions in 2050 or your kids actions in 2050 that are going to decide the fate of the planet. It's your actions now that are actually going to, you know, have repercussions. Yeah. And again, to that point, like it seems so far away. So who knows where I'll be in 2050. Right. So like, why does that even matter? When I get to 2050, then talk to me about it. Uh, exactly. But that's obviously not the way to go about it. <laughs> and so I'm noticing that you you seem very well versed in these psycho psychology studies. And is there a trend here? Like, do you read a lot about that so that you can try and optimize what is your projects like the effects or the the outcomes of your projects or is that just something that i'm i'm making up 
Well, I did, um, I did my master's in cognitive science. So I did study kind of the psychological aspects of, of humans to a certain extent, but also, I mean, I believe in, in, in essentially the people uh, I work with believe that it's really important when you're working in um, on a project that can have an impact in a certain way. You have to understand that impact. You have to understand the studies that were done. You have to understand, you know, for example, there has been extensive work on climate communication, on climate psychology. Like this, these are actual fields of research. People do experiments mm-hmm. on this. So we spent a lot of time at the beginning of our project researching this. And like there are people, for example, who focus on imagery of climate change, like who have been for 20 years studying, you know, if I show you an image of a polar bear on an ice cap, are you going to go vegan? If I show you an image of uh, a wind farm or a solar farm, are you going to go vegan, right? There's been there's been extensive research upon like positive versus negative, personal versus, you know, impersonal, abstract, concrete. There's a lot of research on this. And so reading this this research, we positioned our project saying that, okay, it seems like personal images are more impactful than impersonal ones. It seems like, mm-hmm. um, uh, for example, images of, of, of climate change impacts help people understand consequences. Like they're like, we've actually, you know, found this niche that AI can, uh, can help, um, can help uh, tackle because, you know, otherwise, like, how are you going to generate a, a bespoke image for each person in your experimental protocol, right? Like for, for a psychologist, like it's impossible, yeah. right? You just show an image of a kind of a, a suburban looking house and say, well, this is a suburban looking house and you live in a <laughs> suburban looking house. But what we can do is actually say, this is your house, right? This is your house on fire. And so uh, we're kind of like taking it to the next step and saying we're, we're building on these decades of research and using AI as a tool to go to, go to, the, to the next step. Can you walk me through how you even landed upon this, like the project, because I think it's fascinating, first of all, that you you realize this is what we need to do. So let's dive in and research what is the most effective way of doing that. But I'd love to know maybe just how how did that seed, like what was the first why? And what was the first, what can we do that will make the biggest impact? And how did the project evolve from there? So essentially, this was like an idea that was um, brought forth by um, the supervisor of our project. So Joshua Bengio, who's kind of one of the pioneers of machine learning. And he he came to this idea because um, GANs started being quite good uh, a few years ago. And he had this thought of, you know, what if we could use GANs to to visualize the impacts of climate change? And this was, this was kind of like just a kind of a, a thought that he had. Um, and then when we started working on the project, we, we realized that it made so much sense given like the, the research that was already done. So it was actually pretty mm-hmm. intuitive. Um, but we also realized that there are certain things that, you know, are counterproductive to show. So we spent a lot of time figuring out like, how do you channel um, surprise or shock or awe in a way that's productive? And so like acting on something, it's really important. Like if you show someone something, I don't know, like, for example, um, you have an image on a cigarette pack, right, of someone dying from lung cancer, but you have to channel that. You have to say, well, you know, call this hotline and, and try to quit smoking. Like, if you just show someone something very graphical and very scary, they can just become frozen and not act. So so we spent a lot of time kind of talking to psychologists, uh, reading studies and, and formulating things. And I think what's really important in projects that aim to have an impact on society is to see the broader scope to not focus on, oh, we're just going to create a super cool GAN that do, does a super cool things, but more like, what does that imply? What, what are the, what are the puzzle pieces that we're not seeing? Let's talk to people and see what they say. Right. And, um, 
And, and that's something that's often overlooked because, you know, these studies are can, can be dense to read. Like, we're not used mm-hmm. to this kind of jargon. Like, I don't know what they're talking about when they talk about whatever psychological phenomenon. So it's like you have to unravel unravel the, the string and the spool until until you understand what's going on and then go back to your own project with kind of this new um, this new baggage, this new, you know, research. Yeah, and the understanding that comes from it. Yeah. So that seems like a, a great way to go about it. And can you tell me in your eyes as we're looking to the future, hypothetical future, like where do you feel there is a need for potentially like, because I I think I read in the Wired article you were quoted in about how you you would like to see people or companies, including in their footnotes, hey, these algorithms that are being used were trained or they, they emitted X amount of carbon, right? And, and they take responsibility for that. What other things, I, I wonder, would you like to see happening within the machine learning and the AI community to be more uh, ethical about this and, and help combat climate change? So I think that I see climate change as part of a larger ethical problem in machine learning. Um, reproducibility is a big part. So the fact that um, we don't have foolproof ways, I mean, we're starting, but we're not there yet of, of um, reproducing research. And so, like for example, I'm helping organize um, a reproducibility challenge where people essentially try to reproduce results uh, from previous years to see if, it, if, if essentially if it works on new data, if it works right, if you can actually if it was just a fluke or if it was just like a, a super fine tuning of on, on a certain uh, use case and data set. So I think reproducibility mm-hmm. is part of it. And I, you know, my, my big aspiration in life is to introduce new metrics into the mix because currently we're really focused on accuracy, performance, you know, 99%, yeah. whatever. But yeah. like F-score. when F-score. I see a paper that says we trained our network for another, you know, two weeks on another thousand or hundred thousand images and we got 0.5 percent better on state of the art i find that so frustrating because it's like okay well maybe yeah 99.5 percent is better than 99 but you know above and beyond the, the the carbon you emit but is it you know is it really worth this kind of little incremental improvement to, to do all this all this work and all this computing and all this effort so i think that there's just there's a really pressing need to integrate socio-technical metrics into the machine learning community and to make it a bit more subtle, to make it a bit, you know, more, yeah, encompassing other things other than, than, than accuracy, things like fairness, things like environmental impact, things like, you know, to, to say, okay, well, we got 0.5 accuracy, which cost us X and Y and blah, 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 in terms of CO2 computing and, and whatnot, mm-hmm. right? So to kind of do this trade-off, because otherwise we're just kind of optimizing for a single metric, and then this direction is the only direction we're seeing. Yeah, that just makes me remember a uh, chat I was having last week about how uh, the guy I was talking to, Noah Gift, he was mentioning how Google has been optimizing for these metrics, right? They've gotten the smartest people in the room for years and years and years. And look at where that's got us. Like it's got us with people that will stay on YouTube and then go down to a YouTube hole or go down a YouTube hole and then believe that, you know, QAnon kind of conspiracy theory stuff. 
and or doom scroll through whatever. Exactly, and that's because of this optimization for watch time or these things that yeah or likes and we don't take a step back and we don't see the bigger picture and we don't say like what are we actually doing this for what and i i think that's a really great point of these papers that are being written and they tout that oh look we got 0.5 better accuracy when we trained it for two more weeks but the aspects or again these side effects that aren't being stated i wonder like how can you introduce that kind of culture into the machine learning scientific community it's starting um last year nurips already made it uh, mandatory to have a societal impact statement when you submit nurips is one of the is the largest machine learning conference and essentially now they, I mean, it was kind of abrupt, like all of a sudden, a couple of months before the deadline, they said, now everyone who submits needs a social impact, societal impact statement. Mm-hmm. And I know that at Mila, people were like, what, what does that mean? Like, what are we supposed to be doing? I don't know anything about anything, right? And so people were panicking. And I think the first year, maybe it, it's not going to be the most profound statements. People are just like, well, if someone uses my algorithm in, in like predictive policing, it's bad, right? Or, or something kind <laughs> of a bit a bit shallow, but uh, I think that it's going to become a process. People are going to, you know, also, uh, for example, what I did a lot at Mila was having conversations with people and trying to help them think through the impacts of their algorithm. But of course, like I couldn't cover all 500 people, but people who did reach out to me because because I kind of talk about this a lot. So people know that I'm interested in it. So they reached out and said, okay, can we can we like take half an hour to talk about potential societal implications? And then I took like a bunch of these meetings with people. And I think it really helped. But what we need is also kind of to take a step back and to have ethical training, to have mm-hmm. people at least gain awareness of the fact that, you know, these these things are relevant. These concepts are relevant. You can't just pretend that ethics is not part of the problem, that environment is not part of the problem. So so like, for example, in, in, in engineering um, training, right, in education, you take an ethics class. When you become an engineer, I think in, in most countries, you have to take an, a class about ethics. You can't you, you can't ignore it. And I think we should start having things like that in, in AI as well, because as soon as your products get, get used in, in society, you have to think about those impacts and you have to factor them in to whatever work you're doing, to whatever engineering or research you're doing. So I'm a, exactly. I'm a very, I'm a firm advocate of ethical training or awareness raising in the ML community. Yeah, that echoes a lot of the same sentiment that we've had from people on here quite a bit. I mean, it is necessary and they don't need to get a PhD in ethics, but at least to have a bit of training and have that the like devil on your shoulder when you're creating your machine learning model and then later 10 years later shit hits the fan and you go oh we never could have seen this coming how would we have known that this was going to create such a stir right so that is a huge point and uh, now for example i'm teaching a a machine learning 101 class i'm lecturing this semester and these i mean uh (laughs) Undergraduates have never taken machine learning before, but I always try to take a step back. And even, for example, we were talking about supervised machine learning. And then we were talking about a case where, I don't know, it was just like one of those kind of like cookie cutter problems where you're predicting how, um, whether a house, a real, like a house in the real estate market will sell fast or not, like something like super kind of neutral, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. And then I was like, well, you know, someone labeled this data. 
like how do they label this data like what constitutes like a well selling a, 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 a house that sells fast you know maybe it actually depends on like brokers or it depends on seasons or it depends mm. on other things that are not part of your data set and then these kids i think got super confused um because you know you're used to being like oh this is the data this is what i'm this predicting i'm predicting yeah. the label and then all of a sudden you know <laughs> Professor Sasha, or whatever, starts telling them about how maybe they should be thinking outside the box. And, you know, <laughs> I, I tried to go back on it and be like, well, maybe we shouldn't think about this right now. But I actually like modified the curriculum to add an ethical um, class at the end. But I was just like, you know, when you look at data, when you don't take it as a given, don't think that this is like God's truth on earth. Think about it as a, as part of the picture, as, as, as yeah. one vision of the picture. And that, and also be critical, like say like, well, you know, I've, you know, bought a house or rented an apartment, I think it's missing like this factor, right? Mm -hmm. And like, to try to be critical about the data and the tools you used is, is part of, of, of being a machine learning practitioner, you can't just like, plug in a model, plug in some data, and then think that it works. No, you have Game to Game over, let's go it. home. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean, maybe, maybe it was a bit too rough on them at the beginning. But I think that this is the type of things that we should be thinking about from the get go when we do machine learning. That is a very important point to be critical of the data, totally. how much you need to question the data and make sure that whatever data you are getting is not just like you said, you're not just taking it and saying, okay, here's the truth. This is the, the data says it. So it's got to be true, right? So that's huge. Now, since you are quite informed about uh, what's going on in the world of AI and machine learning. I'm wondering what are some cases of machine learning right now and AI that you are a little bit worried about? Oh, big language models, definitely. Um, GPT worries me. <laughs> really? I, yeah, because, I mean, it, it's an interesting um, innovation, I guess. But I think that so I have a bachelor's in linguistics. So for the first couple of years of my of my university studies, I studied language and the way it's structured, the way that it conveys meaning, like all of these things from a really formal perspective. And I feel like the way that NLP, I mean, natural language processing is going nowadays, it's like more data, bigger models, screw yeah. the language structures, screw whatever's going on under the hood. We just have this model that can like carry on a conversation or generate some text. And it's like, for me as, you know, I have this kind of linguistic baggage from way back when, but still I'm like, guys, like we should, we should be thinking about this. We can't just say GPT-3 can, you know, imitate or, or can represent all of language. Like that's just not true. There's no way, uh, there's no, there's no way that's true. And I mean, even if you like poke it a bit and if you like query it with terms, like we were, we were playing around with different names. Like they've got this thing where you can like, it like generates a, generate a humans of New York story based on a name or whatever. And depending uh, on the name that you input, like if it's oh like, no. oh yeah, if it's Italian sounding, it's going to be a mob story. If it's, oh, you know, geez. vaguely a Muslim or, or Asian, it's going to be a different story. If it's a woman, it's a different story. Like there's so much like variability and unpredictability. Right. And then it's like, yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's funny. Like a friend of mine has an Italian name and then it invented the story about him being like a mob boss. Yeah. Ha ha. Right. But, but, but like what happens when you plug this model into like a chat bot or, yeah. or, or whatever, right? A virtual assistant and you have your kid talking to it and your kid's like, tell me a story. And it's like, well, <laughs> you know? so, and then like the more research we do, we realize that it's biased against, you know, uh, races, it's biased against genders. And it's like, but it's also like always post hoc. It's like, oh, 
this is an issue. We didn't realize this was an issue. I was reading a report recently that was saying um, the the bias again, like oh yeah, it was like saying that um, certain ra- like racial um, populations had a, had a bias against them in terms of GPT, and they were like, but it's consistent with. Um, uh, statistics from the the Bureau of of whatever Crime Bureau of, of the U.S. Okay. saying that African Americans are responsible for X percent of crimes, and then that's 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 what our model shows. So it's okay. And I was like, no. oh, is that okay? <laughs> what? If you query your model with a, an African sounding name and it's racist, it's okay, right? Like yeah. it just blows my mind. Oh wow! Well, I had no idea, and that is, yeah, I can see that can be a problem very quickly. Yeah, and now, I don't know exactly how to analyze these models yet. So I think that before we start, you know, continue with GPT-4 and GPT-18, we should take a pause, take a breath and 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 start, you know, going deeper into these models and how they work and querying them a bit and making them a bit more transparent. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, once we have an architecture that's a bit more explainable, then we can continue building. But if we keep going in this direction, we're going to have bigger models that are harder and harder to explain and that people just take as a given as like this black box of yeah. magic uh, machine learning, which is not necessarily true. Yeah, you're building a house of cards, right? It's mm-hmm. The foundation is not strong at all. And so one day it's going to all tumble down. And that is, uh, yeah, that is an interesting one to look at. Now, what about for the other side? I mean, aside from your own work, what are some other things that you've seen that are inspirational uses? of machine learning and AI? I think that the climate change AI community is really rallying. Um, So we've got more and more people joining, more and more people working on this, more and more people wanting to get involved. Like um, last week I was um, speaking at a hackathon of of using climate change, uh, AI to to tackle climate change. And there was like, you know, something like three or 400 people signed up. And I think that, you know, this is becoming an actual wave and actual you know momentum so that's really great and people are realizing of the potential that's there and in general i feel that ai for good is becoming a thing like i was just reading the news that you know some philanthropic organization donated i don't know 40 million dollars toward ai for good applications i think this is mm-hmm. also becoming a, a trend that's really important and that you know typically ai has been for the kind of the the upper middle class minority uh, right and we have a lot of We've left a lot of people behind, so now it's it's high time to start making more inclusive AI applications, more diverse AI applications, including more voices. Um, there's a really interesting um, field of work that's like aiming to decolonialize AI to make it less white, less male, less you know global north. Um, that I find is really important because, I mean, there's a lot of kind of anecdotal evidence of like you know because most. AI practitioners or programmers are white male, it's reflected in the technology that's made. And that's true. Um, and so we really may, need to make it more diverse and, and make make it more reflective of society as a whole. So people are doing really interesting research in that, in that direction. It's funny you say that because we had on this show, uh, Lewis Bird, and he talked a lot about how, well, he wrote an incredible article. And then he came on here and I interviewed him about how he had to code switch or what he called put on his white voice when he talked to Siri or Alexa because Alexa or it wasn't, it was Brigsby. What's the other one? That's uh, I don't know. One of the the voice assistants and they didn't understand him. And then one day he like spoke in a different way and then it was easier to understand. And all of a sudden, Alexa magically started understanding him. 
And it was very much like, uh, like our um, Charles, I think, who you may know, he spoke about this once too. And he talked about how right now it feels like the Band-Aid that we're putting on top of this is by saying, oh, well, we'll just get Samuel L. Jackson to do a Siri voice, right? And that's like basically, he was saying that's basically like, um, what was it? Like painting blackface? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's like the virtual blackface. And so that is another one where, yeah, I, I can see that being, there needs to be more things going on. And it's good to see that there are people interested in this and there's there's things going on and you, you can attest to that. Yes. I wanted to ask last, uh, well, not the final question, but how can people get involved in some of these initiatives that you're speaking about? So I think that uh, there's no one size fits all uh, solution, but essentially figuring out what you have to offer, whether it be time or skills or, you know, whatever it is, and finding people around you in your community that can benefit from them. So a few years ago, we organized an AI for Good hackathon in Montreal. And first we were like, oh, we're going to do neural networks. We're going to help charities predict whatever. And then we realized uh, what what they actually needed first was like digital literacy classes. So we, we gave them mm. classes about how to gather data, how to use Excel, how to use, you know, kind of tools. And then a year later we came back and they had some data for us. And then we can start predicting like, I don't know, demanded homeless shelters or food kitchens or whatever. So I think that, you know, taking a step back and being like, okay, this is what I can do. But I mean, like I can also use a computer. I can also do all these things and then see what people need and not come with this kind of like bigger is better, more AI is better mentality. So, um, and, and you'd be surprised at what demand there is in, it could be, it could be a virtual community, it could be a physical community, but in general, that there are things, demand that can be met. Yeah. And as far as the climate change, if someone wants to get involved in that? Yeah, I think um, reading the paper or looking at the website that we created, uh, climatechange.ai, and seeing what makes sense. So once again, there's so many things to be done that depending on if people are interested in satellite imagery or or agriculture or whatnot, right? And then um, seeing who's already working on it and what they're doing. So doing kind of a literature review and and starting small, starting with like either a smaller data set, like for example, in your municipality, sometimes they have data sets that you can use and predict, for example, like, I don't know, there's like, there's data sets of canopy coverage, right? And you can see the correlation between the number of trees and heat pockets in your city or, or something like mm. that's just pretty small or, or in your county or in your region and kind of working your way up. But I think it's good to start with like a, a bite-sized piece that you can kind of understand and, and, and start getting more acquainted with concepts and, 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 and tools. And then after that, uh, kind of build up, but not try to start with like, I'm going to solve climate change. Like that's sure. typically something that will get you um, more frustrated than anything. But, and, and then like, we actually met with the city of Montreal a few months ago. Well, I mean, actually before the pandemic and they told us, like they told us, this is the kind of things that we need. So if you have people around you that can help us, you know, for example, predict uh, heat um, heat pockets in, in correlation with trees. This is something that we could really be used in our projections. And so we started doing, you know, projects and hackathons and things like that. So, but it was a very bottom-up approach. It was really like them telling us what they need. And this can be done on any level. It can be done on university level, on company level, on government level. Again, it goes back to, let me see if I can articulate this thought properly, but it goes back to the idea of, finding the problem, not like just solving for a better accuracy score, 
exactly. right? Like really realize what, what is the problem that you're trying to solve and then go out and solve that. Yeah. And who can benefit from it and make sure that there's somebody who can actually use your solution that it's not just going to like go poof and like just be a paper or a presentation or an article or something, uh-huh. but it's going to be an actual like tool for someone or, you know, useful for someone who's actually, who can actually, you know, take action on it later. So at the very least, everyone who's listening can go and share a picture of their house on fire on (laughs) TikTok (laughs) and let their friends know that this is a real possibility. So we got to act now. Mm -hmm. And the last question I have for you, Sasha, is are you a robot? I feel like I'm a robot before I get my coffee in the morning, but (laughs) otherwise I think I'm a human being. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Well, it's been a blast talking to you. I really thank you for coming on here and enlightening me to all of the different things that you're working on. I am, wow, my hat's off to you because you're doing so much incredible work. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.